When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We'll be discussing Brexit Day and what it means. You ask us, why is everyone so convinced that a Corbynite membership will elect Keir Starmer? And we discuss Huawei, HS2 and Northern Rail. So this will be the last New Statesman podcast we will be recording while we're still a member of the European Union because we're leaving on Friday at last. So what does that mean? What's the atmosphere like in Westminster? Uh, nobody is talking about Brexit, which I guess was is very much the point of this majority government, and it's how Boris Johnson would like it. You have Tory majority that at the moment, or not to preempt what will follow in the rest of this episode, but will vote for almost anything uh, for the foreseeable future, most importantly, the withdrawal agreement, which has been passed, and Friday is just another day. And it's also in the interest of, you'd expect sort of Steve Baker to be knee sliding everywhere. But, you know, as a, I know my role in every episode of this podcast is to, you know, write another line of Steve Baker's restraining order. But uh, (laughs) he, um, as one of the more intelligent Brexiteers, he has made a point of saying explicitly, you know, I won't be boozing up at the party on Friday, we should all be respectful and magnanimous in victory. You know, as much as, you know, he loves Marc Francois, I think that the, the message is, you know, Mark, shut up, we've won. You know, the mechanics of Westminster, the mechanics of majority government mean actually there is no discussion mm. of Brexit in the way there was in the last parliament, given it didn't have a majority for anything, still less a Brexit solution. And it's also not in the political interests of the government to say, Woohoo! Yeah, I find that really interesting because they've been so sort of their stated thing that they wanted to do once Brexit happened was we don't want to use the word Brexit anymore. We're not going to have a Brexit secretary. We're not going to have a Brexit department. And they've just been so I find it quite interesting that they've been so explicit about that because that is quite sinister, isn't it? Stopping talking about something when, of course, it's carrying on. We're in the Brexit era and they want to stop using that word. And they've just been completely upfront about it. I, I was on the radio over the weekend on, on a, a BBC show and Steve Bake, uh, Steve Barkley was there. Sorry to excite you there, Patrick. Uh, um, and, you know, I was saying I'll be interested to see how, how many times I hear this word now that we know that this is your, your stated aim of not using it. And he was completely, mm. you know, like merry about it. He was like, yep, we, we want to stop talking about it completely. I mean, it's sort of Orwellian, isn't it? The way that they want to try and sort of erase the fact that it's happening through language. I actually think it's counterproductive, right? Because... The legal question, the political and legal question of will we leave the European Union 
on the 31st of January has been definitively settled. And I think that in the same way, right, that we don't when Mark Carney stands up or when Andrew Bailey stands up and goes, who will be the new governor of the bank, and stands up and goes, by the way, record low interest rates are going to continue, the MPC has decided. We don't go, ah, post-crisis monetary measures have been continued by the Bank of England. We go, global interest rates continue to be at record low, and most economists assume that that will pertain for the foreseeable future. And I think that because they've kind of gone, oh, don't say it. Now, there's obviously one big elephant in the room. I think Mm. it actually encourages journalists in particular to go, well, I'm going to still use it then, rather than it sort of organically vanishing. Now, there is, of course, one really big and important difference, which is our hegemonic broadcaster, the BBC, and, you know, one of our, I mean, I would say rivals, but they aren't really a rival because they have, you know, huge resources, vast studio, etc, etc. What are you saying about uh, the studio? Um, <laughs> but, you know, Brexit cast, or as it will soon become, news cast. Terrible name. Yeah, I mean, it's just like... <laughs> we have ter- a much better name, don't we? Yeah. New States for Podcast, far superior. <laughs> <laughs> podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, But, like, yeah, the fascinating thing about it is a lot of people, myself included, are kind of irritated about the fact the BBC's kind of gone like, well, that's over now, Mm. when actually the the trade agreement is the most important policy challenge of the next year. And, you know, I mean, if you told someone in Switzerland they never argue about the EU, they would quite rightly laugh you out of town, right? Exactly. But I, I think even though the BBC has decided to, you know, to fold on that issue, I think I think it was a mistake on their part to be like, don't say it, because the next decade will be a Brexit decade, and the decade after that may be a Brexit decade. But but I think the chances of us describing it like that have, if anything, gone up by them going, you know, if you say the word Brexit three times looking in a mirror, you know, Dom Cummings appears (laughs) and then forces you to do a science degree. I mean, I'm wondering if at some point we're going to revert back I mean Dominic Cummings hasn't even done his own science degree <laughs> be a bit rich from Dom but I'm, I mean I'm wondering if at some point we'll go back to the old narrative around Brexit which will be oh will they get a deal in time for this new deadline mm-hmm. um, talking about the end of December and what that deal might look like and whether we will have this new cliff edge that we're working towards at the end of December or whether there is just no appetite there for it and this idea of erasing the name Brexit will you know have a lasting impact because as you say it is one it is a huge policy challenge and there are huge ramifications from for example no longer having a Brexit department I mean it isn't completely finalized but there's going to be some sort of super negotiating team under Michael Gove Mm. which as far as I understand will be smaller than DEXEU which negotiated a much less complicated agreement and they are you know stripping off a lot of the expertise from Dexu because Michael Gove is known for identifying people that he likes or thinks are talented and keeping them with him as far as is possible within the confines of what ministers are allowed to do with the recruitment of civil servants but it means that sort of talented people from across Whitehall are being brought in which sounds like a good idea but it means that there's a, a loss of institutional mm. expertise and also you know people have just been saying that it's a shame that people who have negotiated trade deals for the EU who've worked in European institutions who are maybe now retired aren't being brought in because someone made a really good point I think it was on Andrew Marr the other day that normally 
it's the European Union that negotiates trade deals on behalf of the United Kingdom, so they don't have really much expertise in this, and they're trying to take it on with a smaller department and stripping off the people who have limited expertise in it already. I just think it's daft. Yeah. Well, I think one of the problems that this government inherited from Theresa May is her utterly misguided Whitehall reorg when she came in, which was essentially this back of a fag packet thing designed to win the the leadership election, right? It makes no sense to have international, tr- you know, like trade is not separate from biz. It's not like this weird magical economic quality that like you can hive off from biz. But as you say, right, there mm. is a thirty year sort of hysteresis, you know, loss of skills because negotiating trade deals is an EU level competence. And one of the problems with Dexu is that it did do a successful job of recruiting young civil servants from across Whitehall who thought that to follow follow Ollie Robbins, a man with a destiny, was to was to advance yourself and to have this exciting project. But because of the way they were treated, the way Ollie was frequently hung out to dry, it actually just became a device for getting talented civil servants to leave Whitehall. Mm. Yeah, I mean... It, it, a lot it, of them getting jobs at Portland Communications. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's, but it ha, ha, yeah, it has been one of the worst things to happen to the sort of intellectual capital of the of the civil service in, in some time. But I think you're exactly right on this question, Alva, right? Are we going to get to December and suddenly the BBC is going to go, cheese, that's a word I can say on this podcast. Yeah, are they going to go, cheese, um, we're right, you know... We're right near the cliff edge again, um, and I, I breathe. Something also, yeah, something also that I don't think feel has been communicated at all is the extent to which it's not the same sort of cliff edge, it, or indeed, you know, the the ramifications of a no deal this time are. I mean, it's not good. It's not the optimum outcome. But I think t- the problem is that we have been conditioned to conceive of this as a process of cliff edges and given that we still have a very limited well excluding the people in this room uh, well three of them I, I count myself as someone whose knowledge of international uh, anyway I'm telling on myself <laughs> I'll shut up but you know like it's not the same sort of cliff edge but the sort of narrative tropes will all be the same and I imagine the breathless mm. the breathless sort of coverage and but yeah I don't know I think we, so was there that much breathless coverage I mean I know I harp on and on about the the day that David Davis quit, and on the ten o'clock news, the reporter was going, "Well, look, first thing is there might be more resignations. The second thing, Theresa May might face a challenge, and the third thing is the deal might pass." And he's just like, "That is not the correct order of things that people need to be aware of or concerned about." And then it feels unlikely than than what we will get is kind of a sort of sudden kind of, you know, oh cripes, guys, this will be bad, and much more of a kind of like oh, what does this mean for Boris Johnson's ability to keep control of the Tory party? With, of course, the major proviso that the differences between a proper no-deal Brexit and the type of trade arrangement that the various red lines the government has said it has is not that large. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it doesn't. It means that you, you know, you don't, you, yeah, you, you, your data sharing doesn't fall away. You don't have the various problems with financial, yeah, like, you don't have some of the kind of, like, chaos elements than you'd have with a no-deal exit. But, you know, the plan is we'll be out of the customs union, out of the single market by the end of the year. We haven't started building most of the necessary infrastructure to do our own customs and to be a, a, a third country. So, you know, all of those, you know, leave voters in Dover who keep complaining about Operation Stack and, like, long lorry queues, it's just like, 
well, guys, you're not going to enjoy January 2021 very much. Yeah, mm. I've been doing some reporting for a series that our Anthony Howard scholar George Grills is helming called Brexit Isn't Done, which will be launching at the end of this week about the different sectors um, and what they want out of the negotiations. And I've been doing some research into the car industry and also higher education. And that's what people have been saying. They've been saying unless we somehow have a deal that the government has never indicated that they're going to have, which is the closest alignment with the EU possible, as in the closest that we've got to na- the relationship that we have now, then it's bad for us. You know, they don't make a very big distinction between no deal and a bare bones Brexit that it looks like we're about to get. Yeah. So I think that's absolutely right and hasn't been appreciated really in, t- in, in the sort of general commentary on, on the negotiations. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, a really good... Um, video which I think must also have been broadcast at some point really good video by Sam Coates at Sky News where he has spoken to lots of experts about this and that's the key takeaway that all of that rhetoric that we had around no deal and how bad it would be that you know one of the people he spoke to was saying that there are plenty of scenarios in which a deal that we eventually settle will look very similar to what we said about no deal and I just wonder if that's going to be completely lost. Yeah, the, the problem with, with trade negotiation stories, right, is that they tend to end up on page six of the mm-hmm. FT and they're not sexy, they don't lead the ten. And also, I mean, now anybody raising these legitimate concerns about Brexit and the shape of the deal will just, the whole, but you're Ramona, it's happened, mm. get over it thing will be even more acute now mm-hmm. uh, with uh, layered on top of it a degree of, well, this is really arcane and boring, like, you know, shut up. Mm. And I think there's also the, you know, the the tragedy, I, I really recommend that that film, that short film that Sam Coates made, I think you can get it on Twitter as well. The tragedy, he was speaking to some, you know, fishermen about why they voted for Brexit and what they're hoping to get out of the Brexit deal. And, you know, it seems quite clear from news stories over the past few days that people are not going to get the settlement that they thought out of Brexit, that... I mean, it looks likely that the EU will still need to have access to British waters in order to get concessions on other things. And I just thought, I mean, this this man, you know, he was talking about the sort of specific difficulties that, you know, when when they're fishing for a certain, I can't even remember the kind of fish, not really a fishing expert, but, you know, they're like, there's a real shortage of the kind of thing that they used to fish and they were basically hoping that the EU be denied access and that their business would return. It just doesn't look likely that it's going to happen. I just find the whole thing quite, you know, quite moving. And probably that is the way to report it, like sector Mm. by sector, what people were expecting from Brexit and how it looks like it will end up being resolved. But as you say, it's not terribly sexy. Yeah. I think, yeah, the the other question, because we've talked a lot about, you know, the trade arrangement, which ultimately is the most important public policy thing, has huge implications for their ability to keep their promises on tax and spend and all of the rest and will, I imagine, be the dominant policy story of the year and the years to come. I think we should probably take a brief moment to discuss, you know, how we got here. Well, my, I mean, I suppose my feeling is, which you wrote about very well at the time, was that it was the huge tragedy of the last election that the question was, should Brexit get done, yes or no? And it meant that there was no appetite really on either side to discuss the details of Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. You know, we had a sense that the longer, in the last parliament, the longer that was discussed and the more they tried to hammer it through parliament, the more they would peel off support at either end, that they couldn't please the coalition of people that they had behind it, you know, going from Labour leavers as far as the ERG. 
And we didn't have that debate, really. Labour didn't want to. They got all of their candidates to sign up to it. Now, if it's a bad deal, well, it's too late. No one's, you know, it's too late to talk about it. Yeah, there's also the assumption, right, that whatever was proposed in the manifesto would buckle under the competing forces of the Tory the Tory parliamentary coalition, the Tory electoral coalition, the city. So I think it's very much like, well, this a working assumption that it's easy to fall into is, you know, this is a cheque that couldn't possibly be cashed. And maybe it's an extension of the whole, yeah, but it'll be fine eventually. You know, you know, as people drew the conclusion from Sajid Javid's interview, his, you know, face-saving response at Davos, speaking to the CBI, to his interview in the FT, in which he said, we're going to diverge. And then he mm. tells the business lobby, we're not going to diverge. And then people draw the conclusion from we're not going to diverge with it'll be fine, we'll have a you know, soft Brexit, Norway, here we come. When actually that's not that's not what that interview not what that interview means. You know, that and as you have written before, Steve, you know, Boris Johnson is just a Eurosceptic and it is entirely possible that he means what he says, but our working assumption is that, that the weight of reality will inevitably push the Tory party into a position where, you know, it it, it, it occupies a sensible place. Yeah, I guess the question I keep asking myself is, is are we slash I, I'm doing that very pernicious thing where I say we to describe an, an opinion written solely, I think, by me, but because one of the things I and actually a lot of other people did do when Boris Johnson stepped down is when his stock in the parliamentary party is low, this is a huge risk and his career is probably over, which obviously wasn't true. And I think there's a collective desire to sort of memory hold that because it's quite embarrassing and to forget that it was still a big gamble and it was a big gamble he did because he genuinely does want to divert well he wants the freedom to diverge and even if you don't diverge the freedom to diverge from regulations is what creates trade friction it's what creates checks at the border between the us and canada it's what will create checks at the border between us and the eu which will be primarily wales dover portsmouth right those will actually be the big entry points on that at that point but equally are those of us who have taken that on board am i overcorrecting maybe because this is the thing it's ultimately one bit of the 2019 manifesto is going to have to go, right? Like, either the the public, either the end of austerity stuff gets thrown on the back burner, either there are going to be some very painful tax rises, or the shape of Brexit is going to have to look quite different. I mean, we'll get onto this in, in sort of coming weeks as well. I guess kind of the question for me is, do we necessarily, because would it necessarily have been different if Labour had, obviously something I wrote a lot in the run-up, Labour had been able to stick to its original pro-Brexit position. I think by the time they got to the election, well, I, I don't know, we've all went around the country. What do we think would have happened if Labour had had a, you know, I hear the EEA is lovely position in 2019? I think it would have been, they would have lost many more seats to the Conservative Party, ultimately. I think it's easy to, well, the live question, the, the $64,000 question is, do Remainers flock to the not Boris Johnson option or are they sufficiently pissed off with the idea of, of Brexit happening in any form, even if it is a you know a, a Brexit in name only form, that they still vote Lib Dem? And I would, I would argue that if you look at how the Lib Dem and Green vote ticked up absolutely everywhere, that was one of the consistent features of the night. Are people really saying that it wouldn't have ticked up by another five percentage points everywhere had Labour for the election on it specifically we do not we will also get brexit done or would a uh, an election in which both parties are talking about the need to get brexit done oxygenate a genuine debate over the quite hard shape of boris johnson's brexit and mean that actually remainers look at it 
and think, well, this isn't a zero-sum game. Actually, that form of Brexit is bad, and the other form is, you know, the other form mitigates most of the impacts and still gives me what I want. You know, I can we can still be an open country with free movement or, or whatever. My instinct was more sort of the sort of Stephen's way of thinking, which was about the soft Brexit position in the run up to the election. But I think it's an impossible question to answer, actually, looking back, because the Lib Dem position, which ended up backfiring, Mm. although we're not sure how much it contributed to the unpopularity of the Lib Dems in the election, although it obviously did was a factor, that revoke position came out of the fact that they were worried that Labour would be going really hard on, on Remain, didn't it? So if Labour weren't inching towards that position and they were more sceptical about the second referendum position, would the Lib Dems have adopted that more extreme position? And if they hadn't, would they have been a more attractive option to the Remainers who would have been happy with the soft... I don't know, you know, it's, it's impossible to tell. I mean, I think, yeah, it is It is so difficult. I think, I mean, looking at the way Labour performed in 2017, it just feels like we you, you have to conclude that they managed to succeed by slightly pissing off Remainers but not enough to lose them and actually to still be understood as the de facto Remainer party. And I remember from the time friends of mine didn't love the Labour Brexit position but still there was this... Actually, a Liberal Democrat was telling me that during the 2017 election there was polling that showed that most people didn't know what Labour's Brexit position was... But when when polled to get that you'd give your own Brexit position and then and then suggest Labour's and what people guessed Labour's Brexit position was very closely correlated with their own and I think that ideally they should have gone for that kind of fudge again where I think yeah a softer Brexit but I wonder if some Remainers moved over the Brexit debate and decided you know maybe we do need to get this done I mean who knows whether actually that conservative message and you know hammering the get brexit done respect democracy what would be the democratic cost of not honoring this i mean who knows whether that moved some remainer opinions i think yeah a soft brexit seems like the only way they could have done that oh yeah who's to know yeah i think it is so unknowable Mm. because Mm. i mean the thing i go back and forth on is i think obviously yes patrick makes a very good point about the lib dem and green vote ticked up anywhere everywhere what would have happened if you had a soft Brexit, a granite hard Brexit, no, and no Brexit? Or, or, or if they hadn't moved to revoke, yeah, if it was yeah, clear that... that been a no Brexit. Yeah. Although the the, mm. the internal debate in the Labour Party after the European elections was as such that they were never not going to move to a more remaining position, mm. ultimately. Well, I think ultimately mm. the point where Labour could have... Well, because the thing is, I think although Labour's sign of, sort of position of ambiguity in 2017... That obviously wasn't going to hold. I think the hypothetical is what happens if in 2017, in that conference, when he's at the peak of his powers, he's got a change to, admittedly, a change to trigger ballots, which yielded the deselection of precisely one MP. But, you know, he's at the peak of his powers. What happens if he stands up and goes, we will join the EEA? And he just goes, that's the policy. If you don't like it, there's the door. Because... Remainers obviously did radicalise over the two years. And I think, you know, well, Anoush, I feel like you've been the person who's been, A, the most sort of consistent, but also like the most articulate in this building about going, look, no, guys, it would be a terrible idea to have a second referendum. Mm. But I feel like with I definitely mostly have thought, well, yeah, like the economic damage, I at least understand how you fix that. The political damage of doing this again, a much worse, yeah, a, a much worse 
campaign in terms of its you know its discourse and it's not like the first one was particularly great for that either would probably have the same result etc etc but whenever i would kind of get into a moment of like oh shall we just revoke it it would be because you would kind of have like what felt like the 1500th day of going you can put the border in the sea lads or you can put the or you have a soft brexit <laughs> and they just wouldn't accept it and i kind of think that in a way right that the irritation of remainers at the labor party is potentially an effect rather than a cause of Remainers getting irritated with the the Brexit elite and its inability to choose one of the two available Brexit end states. I, yeah, I guess it is an impossible hypothetical. I guess I've never been able to convince myself, particularly once those seven people had left the Labour Party, that they were going to be able to avoid having a pro-Remain position. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. So now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Ask Us. Us. And You Ask Us this week, why is everyone taking for granted that Becky Long-Bailey won't win the Labour leadership election? Because, no, I was going to give an uncharitable answer there. I was going to say because her campaign's not very good. But I just think it's not that her campaign isn't very good, I suppose it sort of is, but because... Regular listeners might care to listen back to our appearance at Podcast Live, in which I predicted that Keir Starmer would be favourite for the Labour leadership, precisely because he was one of the most visible people among the Labour grassroots, most in tune with them on Europe, and the long timetable of this Labour leadership election might have been intended to fix it for Becky Long-Bailey, but instead has just allowed Starmer to build up a head of steam at every stage in the contest, be it CLPs, MPs, affiliates... So I just think it's not why is Rebecca Long Bailey why is everyone taking for granted that Rebecca Long Bailey isn't going to win? It's well, it's impossible not to take for granted that anyone who isn't Keir Starmer is going to win. Apart from, well, you know, who knows what will happen to Keir Starmer in the next sixty-six, I think, days, which is a very long time. But mm. I mean, if everybody votes that first weekend, you can bet your bottom dollar on all the available evidence thus far that most of the votes will be cast for. For Keir Starmer. So, I mean, that I mean, the answer is is literally just Keir Starmer. I, right, I think yeah, yeah. it's difficult, isn't it? Because a lot of people have joined, mm. and you don't know the re- we don't know unless we ask all of them or poll them, and it's really difficult to poll party members why they've joined. Because I've read somewhere that the average increase in CLPs is twenty percent, which is really high. Mm. And also that doesn't come up in the CLP nominations Mm. because they're not allowed to vote in those nomination meetings, but they are allowed to vote in the ultimate election. So we don't actually know what those people are thinking. I suppose you've got to ask yourself, why would somebody join the Labour Party now who hadn't been a member of the Labour Party between between before, you know, December the 12th, 2019? Tim Bale and um, his colleague's book, Foot Soldiers, is a good guide to why people join this. But I mean, parties do tend to have a glut of membership applications after 
an election loss, but in this this particular party had become toxic to a big swathe of liberal left opinion. So why would why would people rejoin the Labour Party knowing that Jeremy Corbyn was leaving? Well, it might be to secure the succession, or more likely, it might be to deliver the succession to somebody who isn't very much like Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I thought this was a really good question, actually, because it made me challenge my own assumption on that. And I think, to be honest, it's as simple as just the polling from the Labour membership. As you say, we don't know what new... Well, maybe... I don't know if, if very new members are included in those polling figures, but, I mean, um, that that assumption that she won't win is just entirely based on what YouGov polling of Labour members says, which indicates very strongly that Keir Starmer is miles ahead, as Patrick says, and I feel like that's that's where that assumption comes from. But I think the questioner was absolutely right that it is slightly remarkable and probably worth appreciating that we have taken for granted for so long that it's a very pro-Corbyn membership and it is interesting that we are now assuming that that won't hold, that even the the Corbyn loyalists aren't sufficiently impressed by Rebecca Long-Bailey to vote for her. So the the, the question asked by another Ian, that's their Twitter hand, is why is it commentary have left far behind the possibility that RLB will win when she's the anointed Corbynish candidate and the membership is reckoned to be very Corbynish. It's yeah. I mean, sorry. I, so I think one, as as Patrick says, right? You got polling, as I understand it, includes the new members. But I think even if you kind of wait away for you know, if you kind of go, well, let's say I think there's a sixty percent chance of Starmer, and we arbitrarily use the new members to take that away by ten percent, mm. you still have a fifty percent chance, well above anyone else's. But ultimately. When two YouGov polls say he's going to get 60% of the vote when transfers into account, when uh, when he wins two-thirds of CLP nominations basically every night, when every time every bit of the Labour Party, whether it's the, you know, every time there has been a somewhat representative vote, be it Unison Labour Links Committee, the Labour Movement, Labour European Movement's executive, be it, you know, every time the Labour list readers, right, the most pro-leadership bit, narrowly vote you know only very narrowly voting for for rlb all of that suggests that keir starmer is ahead but i also think that one of the many ways that labor members have been treated quite uncharitably by most of the press in this period isn't like well they're corbynishian and they're like they quite like renationalizing the railways don't like austerity and are skeptical to most forms of military force right but that is about as far as it goes we're not talking about people who are even as ideologically committed as... When I say the average New Statesman reader, even the even New Statesman readers who are card-carrying conservatives are more ideological than the average Labour member or indeed the average Conservative member. And, you know, and broadly, in terms of the Corbynish values those members hold, Keir Starmer holds... Is, and is also doing a much better job of articulating them. Yeah. And it comes back to the, the root of all this is the misunderstanding that a pro-Corbyn membership is the same as an ideologically Corbynite one. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, I think, even if you believe, probably, you know, rightly, that Keir Starmer is a candidate of the left, he's certainly a candidate of the soft left, you know, you don't necessarily have to echo Corbynite policy obsessions or the leadership line to, to win the membership. Indeed, like there's no evidence that, the mem- that, that that is the case. Just because the membership like Corbyn doesn't mean it wants the 2019 manifesto parity back to them as Rebecca Long-Bailey's campaign... Uh, seems to think is the winning strategy. It is interesting, though, just with, you know, looking back to 2016 and the Owen Smith challenge, um, that 
that like did so badly I think in part because people who were pro-Corbyn felt very patronised and you know felt like their, their their support of Corbyn wasn't sufficiently appreciated and you can imagine a leadership contest this time round where that was slightly translated and people felt you know people are misunderstanding me I still like Corbyn's policies I want someone who was loyal to him you know I accept maybe he was unpopular but ultimately I want to hold true to that and who would see Keir Starmer as insufficiently Corbyn-like in that way and it just hasn't happened as you say he's been articulating Corbyn's position arguably better than Rebecca Long-Bailey I also think ultimately in any election be it a party election or a general election you've got to get people who voted for the other guy to feel that they can vote for you in a way which isn't repudiating Mm -hmm. the decision they made before Mm. and obviously the 2016 leadership the coup had so many problems, the behaviour of a chunk of the PLP from 2015 to 2016, the circumstances of its birth, which meant that it was doomed from the get-go. But there was no way... You've always got to allow voters to find a way of saying, I was right to vote Corbyn in 2015, right to vote Owen Smith in 2016, or right to vote Conservative in 2019, right to vote Labour in in uh, 2024. Mm. And no one in 2016 found that way, in different ways, even though I think that she will still finish third. Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy are finding ways of Mm. going, I was right to vote this way, Mm -hmm. but now I'm voting a different way. And unless you find a way of doing that, you can't win an election. So it's been a big week so far for infrastructure wrangling. We've had how far Huawei should be involved in our 5G network. Also questions over HS2 and Northern Rail has just been taken back under state ownership. So what is going on and what does this mean for the Conservative Party? Because this is being written up, all of these things are being written up as flashpoints for the new Conservative Party and the divisions within it, now that we've got all of these MPs who represent seats that would benefit from these big infrastructure projects. Well, so Huawei's interesting because in many ways it's the failures of the Conservative Party pre-2019 and indeed previous governments, Labour and Conservative beforehand, sort of colliding head-on with the rhetoric of this existing Conservative government. Why, so Huawei, for those of you who have missed this story or found it just too dull to pay attention to, have been given the ability to, to yeah, will build non-core parts of the 5G network, despite the fact they are essentially a, a company run by the Chinese state and people feel that this will give the Chinese government yeah, and it's espionage networks, a backdoor into uh, Brit- Britain's day-to-day communications, not the communications that, you know, the spooks use, but, you know, the ones that, that you and I use. So, you know, I hope that Xi Jinping enjoys uh, <laughs> my, my, you know, overuse of bitmojis. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, why has Huawei done this? Because there aren't really any other companies which can do this. Why is there not a British company which can do this? Well, because of decisions taken or not taken in industrial policy over a prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. Now, which kind of does run up against this, like, so the the essay question that the Tories have sort of set themselves when they think they need to answer in terms of winning action is, like, how are you going to, like, revitalise these towns that they mm-hmm. won for the first time? And, of course, the thing that Huawei kind of reveals is you don't, right? Because you, you can't just click your fingers and suddenly have go, ah, we've invented a British Huawei. You have to go, well, we're going to do some things, and then in 15 years a prime minister potentially of another party gets to stand up and goes, who's made it rain? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I mean, it it has kind of shone a light on the difficulty of the year ahead or or many years ahead for for the government because Mm. 
ministers have had to sort of dance around this Huawei thing because of the Americans saying that they don't want Britain to to have the company's involvement in its in its communications uh, in its network and that is one of the one of the many decisions that the UK is going to have to make while trying to keep the US on side for this mm. you know treasured trade deal that it's that it's got its eyes on but and, and yet like so far it looks like it ultimately won't matter like despite despite America's warnings Donald Trump is too is too self-involved to really have noticed I think so I think they've probably got away with the Huawei stuff I think the HS2 issue is maybe the most interesting of the three because I feel like with Huawei it's sort of as Stephen was saying you know there are sort of logical reasons to do with our investment in infrastructure which mean that Huawei were the only company in a good position to take on this contract and then the debate around it is sort of oh how much do you trust the Chinese state and so and you can't really get get very far beyond that people just have their opinions and they've come up with a sort of compromise position that they yeah. kind of sell to, to, to America as yeah, oh we, well it won't be you know the core parts of it it will just be a little yeah, bit yeah and it's 35%, 35% as a, as a max yeah. and so on so I feel it's like how much do you do you indulge your paranoia how much are those valid concerns I mean I feel like that's not a it's a quite a bit of a circular argument whereas with HS2 I think it's really interesting that from a policy perspective it's becoming trickier the more expensive it is and from a political perspective it's quite simple in the Obviously, if you have just run on a manifesto saying that you will bring investment to the North and the Midlands, <laughs> that you should deliver a huge infrastructure project to the North and the Midlands, um, I think they're gonna, they kind of have to go ahead with it. But you could hear in Prime Minister's questions today, I mean, there were three questions about it. And one new MP for the West Midlands you know, said, will we get HS2 done? And there was just this roar of no yeah, yeah, from yeah. the... <laughs> From the Tory benches, and you couldn't see who it was, but I think it just is indicative of the strength of feeling within the Conservative Party. I think it would be a bad idea for them not to go ahead with it, to be honest. But I think, you know, it is possible, you know, with an 80 majority, that there would still be scope for some sort of rebellion on that or for deep divisions to emerge. What do you think of that? Well, I think the thing with High Speed 2, right, is that there's this fascinating sort of, well, not fascinating, it's entirely, as you'd expect, regional divide within the Conservative Party. If you are a new intake Conservative MP for a West Midlands seat, where, like, actually, ultimately, the West Midlands are the number one beneficiary of High Speed 2, right? It is not primarily a thing for London because it fixes the Euston snarl, which yeah. is why if you travel, you know, in and around Stafford, Burton, Zocon Tren, yeah, any of those kind of seats in that bit of the West Mids, it causes loads of, of knock-on delays in that part of the network. If you are a Conservative MP for a traditional safe Conservative seat where it's going to go through your countryside, you're mm. against it. And if you're a Conservative MP for further north, sorry, my pants going to shout at me when I get home, not further north, the West Midlands is not in the north, it is <laughs> in the West Midlands. Um, yeah, if you if you're a, 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 have a seat that's in the north of England, you primarily go, why is the South getting all of this investment? Mm. But I think High Speed 2 only becomes fraught if they end up having to do crucial votes on it under a Labour leadership that decides and it can somehow finesse being anti it. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously mm. Keir Starmer is anti it because of local opposition in Hoban St Pancras. Lisa Nandy is anti it for reasons that because I... Because Northern Powerhouse Rail should be... I, to be honest, I don't fully understand the policy rationale because Wigan's getting a station under it. And I mean, I mean, to be honest, bluntly, like, 
Lisa Nandy's leadership bid policy agenda does not cohere or add up. It's solely positional, and we <laughs> sorry, Lisa. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's one of those things where when you sit there having to go like, so what? So there's like, are we talking about Nandy pre twenty? But regardless, the the point this is, is another is podcast. The, the, yeah, is then yeah. is then. I can see lots of reasons why both of those leaders might decide to go, "Mm, actually, I think I'm against it. And if you're Becky Long-Bailey, ditto, are there reasons that you find to go, actually, we'd spend the money on Northern Rail? A lot depends, of course, on how much each of those leaders ends up needing the TSSA, which is very pro it. But if the Labour Party votes for it, then Boris Johnson can give it any time he wants. If if the Labour Party manifests some excuse to go oh, nice majority you have there, shame if someone rebelled on it, mm. then it could get a bit tricky. You've been listening to the New States and Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kelly, and our political correspondents, Alva Ray and Patrick Maguire. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Thank you, as usual, for all of your interesting You Ask Us questions. Please do keep them coming. We will get to them all eventually. Some of them as blogs, some of them on the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.